Amen. Well, if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Kings 18, that's where we're going to be tonight, actually 2 Kings 18 through 20, uh, the life of Hezekiah. Uh, one of my favorite figures in the Bible. I love this, the, the life of Hezekiah. We're going to look at that tonight. We could look at it over several weeks, but we're going to look at it in one night tonight. I think it'll be beneficial in doing that. Um, Ronald uh, Kessler is a Washington journalist. He authored a best-selling book on uh, the Secret Service and how it protects the presidents of the United States. And he reported on the, the elaborate, extensive preparations that go on even before the simplest presidential visit. And I had no idea about this. He just tells one story in there. He tells several, but one of them is one evening, George and Laura Bush uh, were in the White House and decided to accept a dinner invitation at the home of Clay and Ann Johnson. Uh, Clay was a close friend of, of George W. Bush from high school, and uh, one of uh, President Bush's buddies from Yale University was also planning to attend, as was an FBI director and his wife. And the Johnsons lived in Spring Valley, a neighborhood in Washington. But the Secret Service set up a command post in the basement. They asked that drapes be installed in the dining room. They even suggested which chair the president should sit in for the quickest emergency rescue should that be necessary. The Secret Service also asked the Johnsons to clear out a closet that was big enough for at least two people. One of the agents told Ann Johnson, in case of an emergency, an agent is going to grab the president and the two of them are going to dive into that closet. So we need to make sure there's room for at least two people there. Well, after he explained all this to her, Ann Johnson asked the agent, what should everyone else do in case of an emergency? The agent looked at her and said, I have only one client, the president. <laughs> Basically, the idea is the rest of you are on your own, right? But I love that story because that's the way it should be with each one of us in our spiritual lives. We have only one Lord. We have only one uh, person to whom we owe our lives and only one person to whom we've pledged our love and our loyalty. And that's the Lord Jesus. So each one of us should be able to say tonight, spiritually, I have only one client, if you will. I have one person to serve, uh, one person who's captured my focus, and one person above everyone else uh, that I want to please. And when I look at the passages we're going to look at tonight about King Hezekiah, I think that's what set him apart. That is the secret uh, to his greatness. If you want to just boil his life down, he had one client. And his one client uh, was the Lord. And what a contrast from his father that we looked at last week, King Ahaz. Uh, King Ahaz had all kinds of clients, didn't he? Um, his false religion was one of his clients. Uh, the people, he was trying to please the people all the time who wanted false worship. They were his clients. The false gods were his clients, and the Assyrians were his clients. You remember, he was always trying to appease uh, to them. So he had all kinds of clients he was trying to please. So there's a, a massive change. In fact, you can't imagine a greater change when his son Hezekiah uh, takes the throne because Hezekiah has one client, one focus in his life. Really, the way Hezekiah is presented in Scripture, he's a new David. He's the greatest king in Israel, the greatest king of Judah since King David, and there won't be another king like him um, in Judah. Now, we find his story in three main passages, and we're going to have time to look at all of them. We're going to focus at the 2 Kings 18 to 20 section, but also you have 2 Chronicles 29 to 32, a long section there, four chapters. 
And the focus, though, in Chronicles, and, and you can read that later at your own leisure, is on the reforms, the, the religious reforms that Hezekiah makes. After his father basically had closed down the temple, uh, stopped uh, uh, the Jewish feasts and all of that. And then you have Isaiah 36 to 39. There's four chapters right in the middle of the book of Isaiah that talk about King Hezekiah. Four entire chapters. And in fact, in, within the book of, of Isaiah, it's often called the Hezekiah book. So this, this long section. So uh, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and, and Hezekiah. Now, again, to avoid the confusion, we'll flip back and forth a little bit, but I want to just make our, most of our focus in the 2 Kings account. And I want to look at three things about his life. I want to look at his character, because again, that's what everything flows from. Then I want to look at his crises. He faces two major crises in his life. And then tragically, at the end, I wish we didn't have to look at this, but I want to look at his conceit. He got proud. He, got, he became proud in the end of his life. So let's start with his character uh, here in chapter 18, 1 to 12. Notice verse 1. It came about in the third year of Hosea, or Hosea, the, king of, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. Now, there's an overlap, and, and there's, a, there's a whole book that's been written, a very detailed book, about the chronology of all the kings of Israel. Because what you have happening is like Hezekiah started reigning as a co-regent with his father before his father died, and then he became king by himself. So it's a, it gets kind of confusing, but that's really not, not the large issue for us. He becomes king by himself in 715 B.C. It's a, a, a date you can remember. He goes, goes till 686. So he's uh, beginning here in the, in, the, in the 8th century. And he's 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, or Avi, the daughter of Zechariah. Second Chronicles 29.1 calls her name Abijah. It's just shorted here, short, uh, it's shorter here, uh, Abi. Now, when Hezekiah comes to the throne, this is one of the lowest points in Judah's history. There's national wickedness, widespread uh, false worship and apostasy. I mean, kind of like what we see in the United States today, right? right? Morality was at a low ebb. Spiritual fervor was at a low ebb. And so the Lord begins here talking about Hezekiah, and it begins with his spiritual life. Because for every one of us here, that's the wellspring for our lives. Everything else about us comes out of our relationship and our walk with the Lord. Our secret life before the Lord sets the course for everything else uh, in our lives. Now, one question, we, we addressed this last week briefly, but I just want to mention it again. How did such a godly man come from such a terrible father? And I think we have the answer here, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah or Abijah. I think it was the influence of a godly mother. That's why she's mentioned here. And from an early age, she must have formed his life, and she must have told him about Yahweh. And she must have told him, basically, son, you got one client. You got one person to please. You need to trust in the Lord, and you need to cling to Him. And he listened to that, and God raised him up as a godly man. But you think about it as he grows up, and he's even the co-regent for a while with his wicked father. And how much that must have grieved his soul. And in some ways, he probably looked forward to the death of his father. 
when he could come in and reverse all the corruption and the apostasy in the land. Now, verse 3 says, He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that, that his father David had done. Again, David is the benchmark. He's the standard. He's the new David. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah. He, he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan, or a bronze thing. This has been 700 years time of Moses is 1400 B.C. 700 years later, they're still worshiping that bronze serpent in the wilderness. You remember they, they looked at the serpent and lived? And by the way, there's a lot of people that still worship religious relics today, don't they? You go to a lot of parts of the world, man, they got relics. You know, they have one of Peter's bones or a piece of the cross or on and on you can go and they worship relics. So he destroys it. Destroys the bronze thing. Now, I love verses 5 and 6 and 7. These are beautiful verses. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. So after David, other than David, there was not another king like him, and there was not another king afterwards like him. Now look at verse 6. For he clung to the Lord... That word clung there is the same word in Genesis 2.24, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It means to adhere to as if you're glued to someone. And that's the way we're to be in our marriages, but that's the way we're to be in our relationship to the Lord. Back, back in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 20, there's a great verse back there that says, To the people, when they came in, come into the land, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and cling to Him, and you shall swear by His name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. He said you need to fear God, you need to cling uh, to Him. Now remember last week what I said about Ahaz, the word Ahaz or Ahaz in Hebrew means to grasp, right, or to hold on to. And I said last week, in fact, we titled the message, Ahaz grasping at straws, because he was a man who grasped at everything. And so I called the message this week, Hezekiah, a God grasper. Because rather than grasping at straws, he clung to the Lord. He grabbed onto the Lord and he held onto him. He was grasping uh, for the Lord. And so that's what makes him great. And then look at verse 7. And the Lord was with him wherever he went, he prospered. So he trusts in the Lord, he clings to the Lord, and because of that, the Lord prospers him and the Lord blesses him. Now, we're not going to focus on the Second Chronicles uh, passages so much, but I want to just mention quickly, if you read those passages, you'll find out that he cleansed the temple. In fact, he reopens the temple. It's been closed. He reopens the temple. Um, he consecrates and cleanses the temple. They celebrate Passover, but they celebrate it a month late because it takes them so long to get the temple cleared out. They hadn't celebrated Passover for uh, many, many years. He commenced and organized the temple ministry. He's focused on the worship of Yahweh. It's the first thing he does is gets the people's hearts focused on the Lord. 
and his own heart as well. So there's a lot of religious reforms that he brings about. But I want to focus on the king's account, which is kind of some of these dramatic events in his life. Now, notice it says in verse 7 of chapter 18, and he rebelled against the king of Syria, Assyria and did not serve him. Now, remember his father Ahaz had a pro-Assyrian policy. You remember that? You remember the, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria? They wanted to rebel against the, the Assyrians, and they tried to get Ahaz to go along, and he wouldn't. Um, he was a client state or a vassal, basically, of, uh, of Assyria. Hezekiah comes to the throne, and he says, I'm not going to bow down to the Assyrians any longer. So he throws off the yoke of the uh, Assyrians. And I love, that, that I love this. Hezekiah, that name means the Lord strengthens. And his life and his reign were true to his name because the Lord strengthened him greatly. We see in verse 8 that unlike his father Ahaz, remember Ahaz got defeated by his enemies. Look at verse 8. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. He defeated the Philistines unlike any king uh, since King David is the way it's presented. He's he's the new David. He's, he's, He's whipping up on the Philistines. And he does a lot of great things. God's hand of blessing is on this man. In fact, we won't turn there, try to not turn there too many times, but go over to 2 Chronicles 32. Um, You might keep a a, a marker there because we'll go back and forth just a little bit because there's a few things in Chronicles that aren't in Kings. But let me read 2 Chronicles uh, 32.27. It says, now Hezekiah had immense riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields, all kinds of valuable articles, storehouses also for the produce of grain, wine, and oil, pens for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds for the flocks. And he made cities for himself, acquired flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great wealth." was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all that he did. God's hand of blessing is on this man as he serves the Lord and puts him first. Uh, down in 2 Kings 20.20, we read about his great feat of engineering. In fact, we were just in Israel a few weeks ago. Some of the folks walked through Hezekiah's tunnel He took water from the Gihon Spring outside the city of Jerusalem and built a tunnel to bring the water inside the city to the pool of Siloam. And it's 1,777 feet long, and they started at each end through solid rock and met in the middle. And they were just a couple feet off when they met uh, there in the middle. So it's a massive engineering feat. Then they covered up the Gihon Spring so the Assyrians wouldn't know it was there. That way they had a, 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 a supply of water because he knew a siege was coming when he threw off the yoke of the Assyrians. So uh, he's a man who's blessed by God. And then when you get down to verse 9 through uh, uh, 12, I'm not going to read that, but it, what that talks about is how the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722. So Hezekiah is reigning with his father Ahaz when the Assyrians come in and take the northern kingdom of Israel. They take the city of Samaria. Now, I think the reason that's here is because it shows how bold Hezekiah was to revolt against the Assyrians. And these are the people that just came and took Samaria in the north and carried the northern kingdom away. So it's reminding us 
These weren't people that you wanted to mess with, yet Hezekiah says, I'm not going to serve you any longer. Now, that's his character, and that's God's blessing upon this man. Now, Hezekiah experiences some crises in his life, and I want to look at how he handles these. Now, go over to 2 Chronicles again, to to the end of chapter um, 31, the very end of 31, the beginning of 32. This is really instructive. This is good stuff here, and a lot of us are going to be able to relate to this. Look at the end of 2 Chronicles 31, it's verse 20. It says, thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah. He did what was good, right, and true before the Lord his God. And every work which he began in the service of the house of God, in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all of his heart, and he prospered. This guy wasn't just going through the motions with this stuff. He did it with all of his heart. Now, the next, and it says, and he prospered, and the next thing you'd expect to read here is, and Hezekiah was such a godly man, God gave him peace, he never had a problem the rest of his life. Look at chapter 32, verse 1. After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah, besieged the fortified cities, and thought to break into them for himself. After all this faithfulness, Sennacherib invades Judah and comes against Hezekiah. You'd think he'd say, after all these acts of unfaithfulness, Sennacherib comes. But it's after these acts of faithfulness, God allows Sennacherib to come. You say, why did God do that? Well, if you go over to chapter 32 and verse 31, we might get a little bit of a, of, a, of a key to this. It says, even in the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon, who sent him to inquire the wonder that had happened in the land, God led him alone only to test him, that he might know what was in his heart. So it may be God is allowing these things to see what's really in his heart. So he's going to experience two crises basically in the same year, back to back. There's a siege that the Assyrians bring, and then he's going to get sick to the point of death that God's going to have to do a miracle to heal him. So enemies come against him and besiege him, the most powerful nation in the world of that day, and then he gets sick. Now go back to, to 2 Kings again, 1813, and it says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, and this is 701 B.C., so he's been reigning now 14 years. A lot of good stuff's been happening. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Syria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And what he does is he begins to pay off the Assyrians. Now you say, now wait a minute. I thought this guy was this bold guy who trusted the Lord, and now he's doing what his dad did, and he's paying off the Assyrians. That's one of the things I love about the Bible. It paints its characters warts and all, right? This was a failure on his part. He caves to the pressure, and it shows us, as the old saying goes, even the best of men are men at best. And so for a while here, he kind of caves in, and he's weak, and he's fearful about what's happening. And he goes back to what they've done before and starts paying off uh, the, the Assyrians. Now, verse 17, then the king of Assyria sent Tartan, Rabsari, and Rabshakeh from Lachish to king Assyria with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the fuller's field. 
And they call out some of the Jewish leaders to come out. And throughout this section here, you're going to hear hear a guy called the Rabshakeh. The Rabshakeh is not the guy's name, it's his title, which probably means like the chief of staff. This guy's the chief of staff of Sennacherib. And so the Rabshakeh is sent there to try to get the people of Jerusalem to surrender. Because back then, if you were a king like this, you didn't want to have to besiege a city and go through all this long process and all that. It's better if they just surrendered, you took the place, and it was all over. So they're trying to get them to surrender. And so they use a lot of of, of psychological warfare and propaganda of war here to try to sow seeds of doubt. Now, if you look at... um, Verse 19, the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? And he's going to go on down through and say, why in the world do you have any confidence that you're going to be any different than the other nations? Because Assyria has been steamrolling every nation in its path. And in fact, one of the great cities of Judah was Lachish. And Sennacherib has just taken Lachish. It's about 30 miles from Jerusalem. In fact, the people in Jerusalem probably saw the smoke of Lachish going up after it was captured. Man, your heart's sinking because you're next. And they're going to become and and besiege uh, the city of Jerusalem. And uh, you notice in verse 28, this is really really good stuff. It's kind of almost humorous. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, but do not speak with us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. What he's saying is that the Jewish leaders there in Judah, this Rabshakeh is out there, and he's speaking in Hebrew where the people in the city can understand it. And some of the leaders of Israel, of Judah, say, You know what? Why don't you speak to us in Aramaic because we can understand that and the people in the city won't hear what you're saying. It's it's upsetting them. Well, what a dumb thing to go say. The guy's going to speak louder in Hebrew now, right? I mean, it's stupid. And it says, but Radshakeh said, has my master sent me only to your master and to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? We're going to besiege this city. And it's going to get so bad, you're going to be drinking your urine and eating dung. And it's the people in the city that are going to be doing it. They need to hear what we're saying as well. So he stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean. So now he's saying it even louder. (laughs) Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will deliver us. And he goes on down in verse 34 and says, Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad and the gods of uh, Sepharavaim and Hena and Irva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? I mean, even the northern kingdom. He said, look, we've been steamrolling everybody. None of these other gods have been able to deliver their people from us. You're foolish to trust in your God. He's not going to deliver you any better than these other gods did. Of chapter 19, verse 1, Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household of Shebna the scribe and the elders, and, and, and to, to, to Isaiah the prophet. Go get Isaiah and bring him in here. Remember, this is a contemporary of Isaiah. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of distress, rebuke, rejection, for children have come to birth and there's no strength to deliver. 
Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master king of Assyria has sent to reproach the living God. See, that's what Hezekiah's big concern is. What this guy's doing is reproaching God, not just us. He's challenging and mocking God. And Isaiah, they, they send, uh, they, Hezekiah sends him to uh, Isaiah to pray. Isaiah comes back, and in verse 6, Isaiah said, Thus you, you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. He's going to head out and he's going to be killed back in his own country. Now then the Rabshakeh comes again. And uh, he goes through again down in verses 12 and 13 and talks about all the countries they've been running over. Now none of their gods were able to deliver them. Now I love verse uh, 14. Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers. The Rabshakeh, the Sennacherib has given him a letter that's outlining what they better do. And Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it and went up to the house of the Lord. He goes to the temple and he spread it out before the Lord. I love that. It's like Hezekiah spreads out this letter and he looks up at God and says, God, do you see what they're saying right here? Well, of course God knows what's in it, right? You don't have to spread it out for God, but sometimes that's a beautiful way to pray, to just spread it out and say, Lord, do you see this problem I've got, that situation I'm in? And he calls out to God, and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. And he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, Thou art God, Thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, hear and open your eyes, O Lord, and see and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations in their lands. He's a realist. He's saying, look, these guys are wiping everybody out. They've cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they've destroyed them. And now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from the hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Saying, God, don't let him say this stuff about you. Show him that you're the true God. I love verse 20, Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I've heard you. That's a good thing right there to, to just pause and think about. It's because he prayed, God's going to deliver. And that's what we need to do when we face the troubles of life. God answers and hears us when we pray. And he goes down here and he, he, he says a lot of things, but I, I love the, the, my favorite parts down in verse 25. This is what uh, uh, Isaiah is saying here about Sennacherib, the, the Assyrian king. Have you not heard, long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as green herb, as grass on the housetop is scorched before it's grown up. But I know you're sitting down, you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because if you're raging against me, because your arrogance has come up to my ears, I will put my hooks in your nose, my bridle in your lips, and I'll turn you back by the way you came. What God is saying to Sennacherib here is, Sennacherib, long ago I did it, from ancient times I planned it, all these, all these uh, 
places that you've conquered, I'm the one who did it. I planned it long ago. You didn't do it. I'm the one that did it. And yet you're mocking me, and I've given you the strength to do everything uh, that you've done. So God cuts Sennacherib down to size, basically, here in this passage. And uh, he says to, to Hezekiah, this shall be the sign for you. Eat this year what grows of itself, and the second year what springs from the same, and the third year you'll sow and you'll reap. Now down in uh, verse 34, God says, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And verse 35, then it happened that night. Angel the Lord went out, struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived uh, in Nineveh. Now, what's interesting is in, in the, in the uh, British Museum in London, you have something called the Taylor Prism. It's the, the man who discovered it. And one of the, uh, on the Taylor Prism are the annals of Sennacherib. And the Assyrians back then kept detailed account of their dealings with other nations, especially their military campaigns. And on this, written in the Akkadian language, is the account of Sennacherib at Jerusalem. And here's what he said. As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority. That's interesting. That's exactly what the Bible says. I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities. Along with many smaller towns taken in battle with my battering rams, I took as plunder 200,150 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. Everything he said so far is true. I then constructed a series of fortresses around him. I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. His, town which, his towns which I captured, I gave to the kings of Ashdod, Ekron, and Gaza. Now, what's interesting here is the, the tribute here given by Hezekiah is mentioned earlier, that Hezekiah paid him money and gold and all this that's mentioned here in this passage. But nothing is said in the annals of Sennacherib of him ever capturing the city of Jerusalem. Now, there's no way he would have left that out if he did. I mean, that would have been the greatest victory of all of them. He never says that his army got wiped out. He never says he went back home because of that. He just never says what happened to Jerusalem which is a massive omission because he's got the place under siege. He's constructed fortresses around it. Nobody can come in and go out. He's shut up like a bird in a cage, and all of a sudden you just kind of pass off to another topic in the annals of Sennacherib. So even the annals of Sennacherib certainly imply something amazing happened so that, uh, that, that Sennacherib was thwarted in his efforts to take the city of Jerusalem. So even history... Uh, bears this out. It's interesting how uh, much these things are supported by, by Scripture. There's a great poem. I won't read it all. You can look it up if you like poems. It's called The Destruction of Sennacherib by Lord Byron. It's beautiful. It's uh, about six stanzas. Let me just read the first and the last one. But it says, The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold. His cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. The sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue waves rolled nightly on deep Galilee. And then the last verse says, 
The widows of Asher or Assyria are loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temple of Baal, and the might of the Gentile unsmote by the sword has melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. And these Assyrians out there in one night, they just melt like snow in the glance of the Lord. One angel, and notice it says, the angel of the Lord just took one, goes out and kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Actually, Josephus mentions this in his writings. A Herodotus, the Greek historian, says what happened is a bunch of mice came and ate all the uh, implements, the shields and all this stuff of the Assyrians so they didn't have things to defend themselves and got defeated in a battle. Now, that's pretty preposterous. I mean, that'd be a lot of mice, wouldn't it? I mean, a lot of eating. you think you could kill the mice off. But so what I'm saying, though, even Herodotus, this Greek historian, recognized something unbelievable happened. But he has to come up with some natural explanation about mice eating things. Um, notice what it says in verse 36. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed. He returned home, and he lived at Nineveh. Of course, that's the the capital of Assyria. Then verse 37, it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that uh, Adramelech and Sherezer killed him with the sword. Those are two of his sons. And they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhad and his son became king in his place. So when he gets back home after some period of time, he's worshiping his god Nisroch in the temple, And two of his sons, probably jealous because he's favoring the other son, come and assassinate him, and they flee, and his other son becomes a ruler in his place. And it's exactly what Isaiah prophesied. And I like the way one person states this. says, the king who mocked Hezekiah's God as unable to protect him was killed in the house of his God who was unable to protect him. You see the irony there? You're making fun of Yahweh. Yahweh can't protect you. Yet he gets killed in the very temple of his own God, who's not able to protect him. People think God doesn't have a sense of humor. I mean, look at the turn there, the irony of this is he's killed in the temple of his God. So that was quite a crisis that that, uh, uh, Hezekiah undergoes. Now, chapter 20, in those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. Now, Actually, his illness here comes before the Assyrians come to beseech the city or or during that time. It's actually out of order chronologically. We know that because look down in verse 6. Hezekiah prays to God when he's mortally ill, and the Lord says, I will add 15 years to your life and will deliver you in this city from the hand of the Assyrian. So obviously this happens before the Assyrians uh, are, are, are there at, at the city, or at least before uh, the Lord destroys their armies. So if you want to put it in chronological order, what happens is Hezekiah is this faithful man to God, and he gets mortally ill, and God uh, sends the prophet Isaiah in, verse 1, and says, set your house in order, for you will die and not live. So he starts reigning at, at age 25, and this is uh, about 15 years into his reign, so he's about 40 years of age. Lord tells him, you're going to die and you're not going to live. He turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth with a whole heart and have done what's good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it came about when Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Return and say to Hezekiah, 
Thus says the Lord God, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I will heal you on the third day. You'll go up to the house of the Lord. God gives him 15 more years to live. And God delivers him from the Assyrians. And I love this. Hezekiah, when he hears this, because remember it says it's not till the third day he's going to get well. So he didn't get well immediately. And he asked God for a sign that he's going to do it. Remember his father Ahaz? Remember when Isaiah went to him and said, ask for a sign, whatever you want. And he wouldn't ask for one, remember, because he'd already made his plans to, 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 uh, to have the Assyrians come help him. Here Hezekiah asks for a sign. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what will be the sign the Lord will give me? And Isaiah says, do you want the, the, uh, the shadow on the sundial to go forward or to go backwards? Uh, uh, ten steps forward or ten steps back? Hezekiah said, it's easy for it to decline ten, ten steps. Let it go backward ten steps. So in other words, go, let, let time go backward, if you will. Now, the Lord does this, and people have wondered, now, was this um, the sun that was actually moving, or just God just made the shadow move? Or did He actually make the sun move? It doesn't really matter. Either way, it happened, right? But He thinks it's harder to make it go backward, so that's what He asked for, and that's what God does here for him. And the idea, I think, in his mind is, if God can delay time then God can delay my death. I think that's what he's thinking, right? God can make time go back, then he can make time go back for me, and God can spare me. And and by the way, if you want to read about this, go to Isaiah 38, verses 9 to 20, and you have Hezekiah's psalm of praise to God after God heals him. Imagine somebody coming in saying, set your house in order, you're going to die and you're not going to live and you're 40 years of age. He cries out to God and weeps bitterly. God gives him uh, an extension of his life. I like this. Uh, my, my friend Tim LaHaye, I was uh, talking to him one time, and when he was 75 years of age, he prayed a prayer. He, he said this publicly, but I was talking to him in private, and he told me about it. He said that uh, when he was 75, he asked God one time, went to God based on this prayer, and asked God for another 15 years to live. But he said something funny. He said, I asked God for 15 more years to live, but also when I got there for an option to renew. And I like that. So, you know, just in case he wanted more. But I think it's interesting. You know, Tim died like a year ago, and he was 90 years of age when he died. God gave him 15 years to live. God didn't give him the option to renew, uh, but he did give him those 15 years to live. And so, you know, God cares about those kinds of things. Sometimes people say, well, you you shouldn't ask God for stuff like that. God cares about us. And he cares about our lives, our families. And um, if Hezekiah hadn't prayed and just said, okay, I'm going to die, that's it, he would have died. But God gives him another 15 years. Well, now at this point, again, I hate to uh, end the story this way, but it ends with his conceit. It ends with his conceit. Now, just think about this for a moment. Assyria is a massive power. They're the superpower of the day. And you got all these nations around there, and all of a sudden they hear, man, this guy Hezekiah was mortally ill, and it was a miracle. He, he's, his life's been prolonged. And they hear the Assyrians came down, conquered 46 cities in Judah. They had this city besieged, shut up like a bird in a cage. They had their siege ramps and their fortresses built around it. Nobody could go in and nobody could go out. And and, and Sennacherib somehow headed back to Assyria with his tail between his legs. Now, word got out, man, this guy down in Judah, this Hezekiah, he must be quite a man. 
He must be an amazing king. He must be an amazing military uh, strategist to have figured out how to defeat uh, Sennacherib. So verse 12 says, at that time, Merodach, it's actually Merodach Baladan or Baradach Baladan, a son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters to present to Hezekiah for he'd heard he'd been sick. And uh, they bring him all kinds of, of treasures and things. So what's happening is Hezekiah's reputation is growing. He's exalted now on the world stage. Everybody thinks he's a great leader. So a delegation from Babylon comes there. Babylon at this time is a lesser power. They're going to rise later, but they're lesser. Assyria is the great power. Probably this Merodach Baladan guy thinks, man, if that guy can take care of Assyria like that, I want to be, his, I want to be in an alliance with him. So he's coming there probably seeking an alliance with Hezekiah because he realizes that he has great power. And notice it says in verse 13, then Hezekiah listened to them about making an alliance probably. He didn't need an alliance. He had Yahweh. And he showed them all his treasure houses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasury, showing him all of his military might. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that he didn't show them. They come in there and say, man, you must be something, man. You got healed from sickness. You you defeated the Assyrians. And he says, yeah, let me show you all about it. And he comes and shows them all of his treasures, all of his weapons. All of his treasures and weapons had nothing to do with his deliverance, right? It was God that did it. And what we see here is that Hezekiah missed an opportunity to glorify God, and he glorified himself. He had an opportunity to put God on display before a pagan king, but he steals God's glory. And think about this. Think how many times our silence dishonors God. We're silent about what God has done. Charles Spurgeon said this, Hezekiah's sin was his unholy silence concerning his God. He does not appear to have a word to say about Yahweh. He just talks about himself. He said, would it have been polite Etiquette nowadays often demands of a Christian that he should not intrude his religion upon company. Away with such etiquette, Spurgeon says, it's the etiquette of hell. Now, I like that. It's the etiquette of hell not to tell people what God has done and to somehow take credit for ourselves. I read this quote a while back, but I, I, it's, it's powerful. It says this, pride is the dandelion of the soul. Now, this time of year, you see a lot of dandelions around right in the spring coming up. Pride is the dandelion of the soul. Its root goes deep. Only a little left behind sprouts again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest encouraging cracks, and it flourishes in good soil. The danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness. That's exactly what you see here. God had been good to him. I mean, victories, wealth, riches, and he gets all this goodness, and pride flourished in that good soil, and it fed on the goodness of God, and he took credit for these things himself. I mean, I'm not sure he ever just said, you know, it doesn't say here that he ever said, you know, hey, I did all this myself, but that's what's implied, showing him all of his treasures and all of his military might. Not one word here about the deliverance of Yahweh. Now go over to 2 Chronicles uh, 32, and uh, we'll, we'll close up over here. 
Notice in uh, chapter 32 and uh, verse uh, 23, it says, And many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and choice presents to Hezekiah, so he was exalted in the sight of all the nations thereafter. Again, man, he's, man, he's the, the, the guy everybody wants to be friends with now. And it says, In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and on Jerusalem. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart. Now, that's the good news, right? At some point, he realizes he's proud. Both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. God postpones His wrath, and He's going to bring it upon a a later generation. Now, one of the things that you see here about Hezekiah that's interesting, though, um, in this passage of Scripture is, um, go down, I'm sorry, I said I was going to end there, one more thing I want to mention. Go back to 2 Kings 20, and we'll finish here, in uh, verse 16. After all this is over with, and... uh, 2 Kings 20, 16, it says, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, days are coming when all that's in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. So remember, Assyria is the great power now. It's 701 B.C. It's about 100 years later, the Babylonians are going to come with Nebuchadnezzar and haul the southern tribes of Judah away. So Isaiah says, you know, Hezekiah, you're real free to show the the Babylonians everything here. One of these days, they're going to come and take it all away. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away. Now, it wouldn't be his sons, but his relatives. And they uh, shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you've spoken is good, for he thought, it is, not so, it, is, it is not so if there shall be peace and truth in my days. Now, the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and so on are there. Now, he tells him, look, because of what you've done here, God is going to come and the Babylonians are going to take away everything that's here, but it's not going to happen in your day. It's going to happen in the days of your children and your descendants. And Hezekiah says, it's good what's happened here. If it is not so, there will be peace and truth in my days. So, that's their problem. <laughs> it's, going, it's good. It's not going to happen during my time. It's going to be with them. Now, that's a very callous way to view life, isn't it? It's kind of the, people have called it the Hezekiah syndrome. Kind of like, you know, we care about our time and our lives and our generation, but not the generation and what's going to happen to people after us. You say, well, man, I thought Hezekiah was the best king since David. He is. But the best of men are men at best. And I'm glad these things are in here. I mean, look at David. He was the greatest king. He's the benchmark. What did he do? He committed murder and adultery. Hezekiah, he gets afraid the one time and gives a lot of money to the Assyrians. At the end here, he becomes prideful. He's pretty callous about the future generations and what's going to happen to him. He's just, he's just thinking about himself. But in spite of all of that, you go back and the overall analysis of his life is He trusted in the Lord. He clung to the Lord. The Lord was with him, and the Lord prospered him. That's the overall synopsis of of his life, even though 
uh, he had failures. So that's what we want to emulate. We want to trust in the Lord. We want to cling to the Lord. Like Hezekiah, we want to have one client, one person we want to please, one person that our life is focused upon. And we're going to fail like Hezekiah did. But even when he was exalted in pride, what does it say? He humbled himself, came back and humbled himself before the Lord. Now, Hezekiah, the greatest king since King David, and he gives birth to the worst king that Judah ever has, Manasseh. And that's who we'll come and pick up and look at next time. Well, let's pray together. Father, we come to you, and uh, certainly we live in a low ebb today in our, our country, morally and spiritually. A lot of apostasy and, and immorality, turning away from you. And Father, we need people like Hezekiah to rise up, people that trust in you and cling to you. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us to be those people in our generation that you can prosper us wherever we go. Father, whenever we fail like Hezekiah did, like Hezekiah, may we humble ourselves before you. God, may each of us here tonight take this to heart, the things we've studied here tonight. May it be the goal of our life to cling to you, to be God graspers, not grasping at straws like Ahaz, but to grasp for you, to have one client, to have one focus in life, but it's to serve you and to please you, our great God. Father, help us to be faithful in our time like Hezekiah was in his, so you can be pleased through us. And Father, again, as we see these godly men having such ungodly sons, I, I just pray for all of us here, Lord, and for our children and our grandchildren, again, that you'd bless them, Lord. We can't turn their hearts to you, but we pray that we can be an example and not do anything in our lives to, to put up a stumbling block but that they can see in our lives a person who clings to you and trusts in you. So we can do our part, Father, to see a work of grace done in their lives. Father, we commit ourselves to you now for the rest of this week. May your blessings be with us, we pray in Jesus' name.